Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Our reading this morning comes again from the Gospel according to Luke. Our reading from Luke this morning is a form of what is known in the Gospel according to Matthew as the Sermon on the Mount, which is very familiar to a lot of people. It's found in Matthew 5 through 7. Luke's version of this collection of teaching from Jesus is reaching from verses 20 all the way to 49 in Luke, and it's very similar to Matthew's with just a few minor changes. One noticeable difference is the physical location of the sermon itself. While Jesus is on a mountain or a hill in Matthew, Luke makes it a point to say that Jesus has now moved down to what is called a level place or a plain, topu pindenu in the Greek it says, a level place. For Luke, a mountain, you see, is a place of prayer. It is where Jesus has chosen his 12 disciples and now Jesus moves down to the plain to be among the people whom he is teaching. Also, unlike Matthew's nine blessings and no woes, which we know as the Beatitudes, Luke has four of each blessing and woe set in parallels, poor, rich, hungry, full, weeping, laughing, rejected, accepted. Our reading this morning is the first major block of instructions after the blessings and woes in Luke. And I have to tell you, just between us, it's a hard pill to swallow. (laughs) But as we shall hear today, It may be a hard pill to swallow, but it is a foundation upon which our lives must be built as followers of Christ. So let us turn and hear this word of instruction from our Savior. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. But I say to you who are listening, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes away what is yours, do not ask for it back again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive payment, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. Instead, love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word.
Let's sing this song together. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Let us be known, let us be known By the way we love Let us be known, let us be known By the way we love, 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 love The great God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Thanks be to God. Now, I was taught at ILIF, where I went to seminary, you preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another, um, but I think in Colorado, I think you got to work in a water bottle somehow, so um, chapstick maybe, so we're going we're gonna to try this out today. Grace and peace to you, people of St. Andrew United Methodist Church. I am so grateful and excited to be a part of the ministry here with you as together we practice the ministry of the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ. From your mission trips that we just heard about to the outreach to support local schools and nonprofits to the support provided by the care team to building volunteers to staff, I have to say, I have to say the depth and breadth of your witness is evident and I am so inspired. Your welcome has been wide and I know that that extends beyond me. So thank you. My family and I look forward to getting to know you in the weeks ahead and I am just so glad to be here. Today's sermon series is part of a larger sermon series, Would You Be Mine?, which focuses on the art and practicing of neighboring. And so when I looked at the other identified biblical practices of neighboring in the sermon series, I admit the party planner, the table setter, the gardener all sounded like a lot more fun than the peacemaker and perhaps even a little easier to preach on. But I'm up for the challenge, and I hope you are too. In the text that Jerry already mentioned in Luke, Luke 27 through 36 echoes the Sermon on the Mount found in the Gospel of Matthew. 
In Luke, however, these directives from Jesus are identified as the Sermon on the Plain, which occurs after the commissioning of the 12 apostles when Jesus descended from a time of prayer and came to be with the people on the mountain. He stood on a level plain and a crowd gathered. Many of the passages referenced today are likely the familiar ones and echo the Beatitudes. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and don't even withhold your shirt. Expect nothing in return. Mercy is what's promised. Simple, right? I'm not sure if this text were the measure of our faith that any of us would pass or even want to be a Christian. And while the reward is God's mercy, it is a long journey to get there. The context for the community in Luke includes great diversity, like Simon the Zealot, who was violently opposed to the Roman occupation, and Matthew, the wealthy tax collector, who was part of the system and colluded with the Romans. Early church communities were diverse, never uniform or monolithic, with different political views and tax brackets and realities, kind of like St. Andrew. And yet, I would like to imagine that most of us would not simply want to attend a church where people only looked, thought, believed, voted, or loved like us. How boring would that be? However, it's easy to get stuck in our own complacency and only be comfortable with what we know. As you notice in the community gathered here today, I wonder who's missing. Who are the neighbors that we haven't yet met because we simply haven't crossed the invisible line that divides us? What might we be willing to give up to forgive for the sake of peace and to be the beloved community, even if it means giving up our own self-interest? Now, some preachers would take a righteous approach to the text this week and set these passages apart as markers of a true believer. Others might ask and say that Jesus is requiring of us the impossible and even sacrifice, coming at too high of a cost. But what can easily get lost here in our gut response to this calling is a different way of life. It's the radical alternative that Jesus is offering. Jesus isn't asking anything of us in his humanity or his divinity that he isn't offering in himself. One of my mentors in preaching is the Reverend Dr. Barbara Lundblad, who teaches at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. She shared once that she was driving in the city and noticed a church bulletin board. The title of the sermon that particular week was Following Jesus is Loving and Practical. 
Immediately she did what likely many of us would do and start to argue with the sign. I don't think so. Following Jesus may be loving, but it surely is not practical. And then she actually pulled over and started to make a list of all the impractical things that Jesus calls us to do. Dr. Lomblad goes on to say, if she ever decided to take up the argument again, she would turn to this passage from Luke chapter 6 to make her case. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Loving, yes. Practical, no way. It may be a little more palpable to hear and focus on this part of the text. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That seems a little more manageable. After all, these words are plastered in classrooms across the world, from the writings of Homer to nearly every spiritual tradition, from the practice of the Baha'i faith to Buddhism to Christianity to Judaism and even in Hinduism, which says, the sum of duty, do not do unto others what would cause pain if done to you. Boiled down, the golden rule is essentially the template and consistent theme and way of life in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And while it's tempting to just focus on this verse, it's impossible to ignore the rest of the story. You know, the part where Jesus says, love your enemies? He not only said it once, he repeats it just to make sure it sticks. Love your enemies. Do good and give them your very coat while expecting nothing in return. This is where it gets really, really hard, moving beyond the impractical. And as Reverend Lumblad would say, to getting downright dangerous. Now, if this text weren't challenging enough, it is likely that Jesus was speaking to those who were oppressed and not so much to the oppressors, to the ones causing the harm and the pain, which is maybe who we would like to think the intended audience was. This text, in fact, is even harder to hear from the one who has a clear track record of being in ministry with the margins, of challenging unjust systems. Now let me be abundantly clear here. In no way do I think this passage is intended to justify violence or to ask those who are victimized and oppressed to endure more violence or harm in order to be faithful. There is, though, something more transformational going on in the text in which New Testament scholar Walter Wink calls out. He offers this as a new paradigm, one in which Jesus' words are a form of nonviolent resistance, a strategy in which cultural norms are upset by the actions of those who are harmed. It's countercultural, actually active choice and strategy rather than passive response. Talking about nonviolence resistance 
brings to mind Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Fannie Lou Hamer, Gandhi, and other giants of people who throughout history have loved their enemies by finding ways to resist evil and harm beyond returning the violence that they have endured. While their legacy lives on in our collective history, I find myself looking and longing for more tangible examples of this in today's time, where senseless violence feels more like an everyday reality, evidenced by the recent killing of Jalen Walker and seven people in Highland Park. From a church in Charleston to a synagogue in Texas, it's hard to hear the words of Jesus, much less to live them. As a person of faith, as a person of privilege, a minister of the gospel, I feel at times a loss for what to say and how to respond in the face of such evil, other than to seek justice for and with those who have been harmed. And yet, that's my struggle, my humanity. It's Jesus who is a trusted partner here, a comrade who goes the distance and speaks to the places and people in, a, in pain in a way that I fall short. Simply put, he has street cred and cross cred. And there is an extreme cost to peacemaking. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, bless them, and pray for them. Expect nothing in return. So not practical, and yet he shows us that it's possible. Do you remember, maybe it's just because I'm from South Carolina that I remember this, but do you remember less than 48 hours after the shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, at a bond hearing for the perpetrator, a group directly impacted by the violence, including Nadine Collier, whose mother, Ethel Lance, died with others at Mother, Annual, sorry, mother Emanuel AME Church. Do you remember when she stood in front of that courtroom and said to Dylan Roof, I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I'll never hear my mother's voice again. I'll never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. The cost of hate was too big of a burden to bear. To those who are most oppressed, most impacted by the harm, these are my guides to peacemaking. One of the most profound examples and costs to peacemaking, I recently observed while on a trip to Israel and Palestine in May of this year. I traveled with 24 other women from across Ireland, Canada, and the U.S. to meet with Palestinian and Israeli women, Christian, Jewish, and Muslim women, all desiring peace and seeking to build peaceful communities. One of our guides said to us, the Holy Land is a microcosm of all the brokenness of the world. Indeed, that was my experience. 
can't think of anywhere else in the world where peace feels like a shared common value and desire, yet it feels so distant from the daily reality and lives of people living there. One night, our group gathered to spend an evening in the home of a Palestinian Christian woman, Fatim. We learned that not too long ago, the family's olive trees, which are a legacy passed down in Palestinian families as a means of generational wealth, we learned that Fatim's family trees were being uprooted in droves, torn from the soil to make way for illegal Israeli settlements. Fatim shared how grown men wept as they saw their trees uprooted, hundreds of years old, planted by their ancestors. Fatim was a woman of stature and wise with age. She decided to approach the Israeli soldier who was ordering the trees to be uprooted. She referenced the soldier's own tradition and scripture, particularly the verse from Deuteronomy. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Fatin tried to be a peacemaker and connect with her enemy. She tried to reason with him, pleading for peace and seeking common ground. The response? She was threatened with tear gas. Then she happened to notice the Palestinian man behind the bulldozer, whom her family had often invited to their home and shared the bounty of their harvest each year. She went to him pleading, you know the harm that you are causing in participating in such violence against people in your own community. Why? To which he replied, through his own tears, I have no other way than this job to provide for my family. Peacemaking is hard. It's messy, it's complicated, and sometimes more challenging with those in our own family, in our own community. How often we fall short and trip up over our own desire for security, protecting systems rather than people. Our group later went on to hear from Muslim and Jewish women like Leah Solomon, an American Jewish woman living in Tel Aviv, and Leila Al-Sheikh, a Palestinian woman living in the village of Batir in the West Bank. One of them shared how her child died at a checkpoint, and another lives in fear that she will not be able to get all of her children out into safety in the middle of the night because she can only carry one child at a time. She has three children, all under the age of eight, and there is less than three minutes, less than three minutes between when the missile warning happens and is broadcast and when the missile actually strikes. All of the women that we met longed for peace from the Israeli Jewish woman who hosted our Shabbat dinner to the Muslim women who gathered in the Ida refugee camp to share a common meal with our Christian group. Geographically, they are all neighbors who live in close proximity, and yet they are separated by physical and systemic barriers that prevent them from even knowing one another's name, much less one another's story. 
They are a part of one another. Their lives intertwined in ways they don't even know. Now, I, I wouldn't be a very good preacher if I didn't say that I also have reckoned with peacemaking, up close and personal. When my wife, Jennifer, was eight months pregnant with our son, Samuel, we were carjacked at our local neighborhood grocery store. Our car was blocked in when a man with a mask came alongside of my door and held a gun to my window, yelling for me to get out. Jennifer was amazing, is amazing. An instinct kicked in for her and she quietly exited the passenger seat and got herself and our son to safety. Me, I wasn't so quick. I went to my head arguing with this young black man that he didn't have to do this. Barack Obama had just been elected and things were gonna get better. Years of nonviolence training with the Fellowship of Reconciliation, where I had been a facilitator and offered workshops all around the country. Years flashed before me, and I tried to recall what others had done when facing the end of a gun. All those years of nonviolence training and all that actually made it out of my mouth was, I know in your heart you don't wanna do this, so please just let me go. Luckily, I went from head to heart and realized what could have been lost, and I got out of the car, meeting Jennifer inside the store, watching as our car sped away. About two weeks later, we received a call that our car had been located and a suspect apprehended. There had been three carjackings that same night, all with a weapon, all women and the district attorney wanted to ensure us that the full extent of the law was the only option. Jennifer and I talked, both having different experiences and responses to the trauma of that evening. We decided to call the DA and learn more about this man. Turns out Leroy was 19. He was facing several assault charges and mandatory sentencing for use of a weapon. Thank God we were physically fine, but the fear of what could have happened and the sense of being unsafe in our own community stayed with us. For the first time in my life, I remember feeling unsure of the world and paying attention to things like, did I lock the house door? Who was in the car beside me at the red light? I began to question what even neighbors could I trust? We drove miles out of the way to avoid going to our neighborhood grocery store. Afterwards, and for quite a while, I doubted myself and my call as I struggled with what it meant to work with and to advocate for and with those on the margins every day. I struggled with what it meant to be a peacemaker and to have had such a grave injustice committed against the people I love the most. In September the following year, we went to Leroy's trial and read a statement of impact. I had difficulty writing the statement because as I did, all the emotions of the time came back to me and I was triggered, literally, again. 
but so is my conscience. I am very, very aware of the sentencing and prison rates for young African-American men and felt in my core that Leroy spending his life in prison would be a waste. I know that we do not live in a society based on racial equity and equal opportunity where all lives are valued. And yet I was standing in a courtroom facing the one I wasn't sure valued my own life. Showing up at the hearing for me was about a call to peacemaking, not perfection. A call to see myself in the other, the other that was and is so explicitly tied to my own humanity. I made a commitment to Leroy that day to teach my son that Leroy was no less of a person because of the crime he committed. Peacemaking, as Jesus described in Luke, is about creating a new narrative, a different reality, a narrative not based on otherness, but based on mutual love and respect, where we see ourselves in one another. Clearly, Barack Obama's election was not something that Leroy found great hope in, or that would have perhaps changed his course of his choices that November day. That was my privilege and naive thinking. But what will change the course of history is my relationship with Leroy. Not because of anything that I've done, but because of God's call and vision for peace, justice, equity, love. All of which exists beyond my own limitations and because I've been changed as a result of my relationship with Leroy. That is the promise, that is the mercy found in the Gospel of Luke today. Valerie Kerr, author of See No Stranger, is a lawyer, faith leader in the Sikh community, and founder of the Revolutionary Love Project, a network that seeks to further peacemaking in local communities, especially communities, those who've experienced violence. Her work began shortly after 9-11, when her own uncle was the first documented hate crime. He was living in Arizona at the time and was killed in front of his own gas station. He was a beacon of the community, and he was killed by a man claiming to be a patriot. Kerr has since shown up in communities after great harm and violence has occurred and documented the actions of peacemakers, those who turn to peace rather than violence. In her book, See No Stranger, she offers these practices for peacemaking. First, see no stranger. Kerr notes that all great wisdom traditions of the world carry a vision of oneness the idea that we are interconnected and interdependent, that we can look at the face of anyone and say from a spiritual declaration and biological fact, you are a part of me that I do not yet know. And yet, more developed brain studies and brain imaging research on bias has indicated to us now that the mind sees the world in terms of us and them. In an instant, split second, in an instant, the who we see 
as one of us, determines who we feel empathy and compassion for, who we are willing to stand with and stand up for. The good news is that we can change how we see, that our brains are indeed malleable, that we can step towards peace by actively listening, making us and them a harder line to hold. And when we listen first, we find more often them is also within us. So St. Andrew, I wonder whose stories have we not yet heard? Who's the them that we haven't yet met? The second practice of peacemaking, according to Kerr, is to tend the wound. How tempting it is to see our opponents as evil, and yet even my kids can tell you, bullies are people who are hurt. Not an excuse for behaviors, but an indicator of insecurity and lack. Loving our opponents is not just moral, as Jesus might say, it's also strategic and at the core of what it means to be a peacemaker and what makes peace possible. Kerr offers that the first act in loving one's opponents is to tend our own wounds, to find safe containers to work through our own grief, our own rage, so that our pain doesn't turn into more violence, directed outward or inward. At some point, if and when we are ready, we can come to a place of wondering about our opponents, if not yet loving them. And here's the thing too. We all have different roles and gifts and different strengths. So consider if you are not in the one directly in harm's way, how might you be an ally in peacemaking? Or if you are the one directly impacted by the violence, who might you reach out to for support and invite to stand with you? The third practice of peacemaking is loving ourselves. Kerr describes how Gandhi, King, Mandela, they tell us a lot about how to love others and our opponents, but not so much how to love ourselves. Loving ourselves only is escapism. Loving only our opponents is self-loathing. Loving only others and forgetting to love our opponents or ourselves is simply ineffective. Love must be practiced in all three forms and can only be lived out and practiced in community. Now, St. Andrew, perhaps your peacemaking, neighbor-reaching, community-building comes not as a result of tragedy or harm. I certainly hope so. And yet, I wonder what it might take the form of to simply reach out to someone who has a political sign in their yard that just makes you cringe. Or instead of spending your time and energy arguing with someone on social media, to take the time to invite them to coffee, conversation, or even church. Maybe peacemaking for you is responding with an open stance and curiosity rather than reacting 
choosing to sit next to that relative at the holiday dinner this season. All of this peacemaking can feel impossible. And Jesus made it clear that this is the way of being a good neighbor. Retribution and revenge are the ways of the world. Peace and compassion are the ways of the kingdom, which can be created in the here and now with each one of us making a choice in the moment. The call is clear. Together by seeking the ways of peace, by living as people of peace, we can indeed be good neighbors with God's help. We can collectively co-create communities of peace, extending the love, the grace, the mercy of God, and indeed change the world. Not practical, certainly not easy, but possible together. St. Andrew, are you with me? May it be so. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.